0: Thanks, Miriam. Tim switches the screens over, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and it's a lamp unto our feet, a guide unto our path. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would enlighten us, and that you would guide us, and that you would lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us not give up, but let us encourage one another. Uh, We're drawing to a close the series that we've been looking at over the last uh, month or so, uh, thinking about faith on our front lines, thinking about the places that God has set us in our kind of Monday to Saturday life, our normal life, our life outside of church. We're kind of drawing those uh, strands together uh, this morning. And we're looking at uh, this chapter in the letter of Hebrews. Uh, It's a great preacher's chapter uh, there are some passages of the Bible that are really hard to, to preach on, the are others that are a bit more easier. And one of the things that makes them easier is when there's a theme or a strand that kind of runs through a passage, and you can come at it again and again and again in, in different ways. And uh, so it is with uh, the book of Hebrews, so it is with this uh, passage. And a theme that comes through is one of encouragement. Uh, this letter was written, I'm not sure who it was written by, but it was written to uh, a Jewish church church. Um, First Christians were largely Jews and uh, the writer of this letter writes to them to encourage them in the years after Jesus has ascended into heaven and the Spirit has been given. And it's encouraging them to keep on. And as all good preachers know, you preach first to yourself and then you preach to your congregation. And so the author of this letter keeps saying again and again and again in his letter, let us do this. Let us do this together. So my talk this morning is based around some of the let us phrases that there are in this passage and in Hebrews. So the first one, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. We've been thinking about life on the front lines, and that's that's a good thing to do. We've been thinking about the place where God has set us in the secular world, uh, our families, our colleges, our universities, our workplaces. And it's a good thing to do, but there's always an inherent danger with a series like that, a topic like that, that we become uh, focused too much on ourselves and too much on the challenges and the opportunities that are there before us. We began right at the beginning of this series by thinking about church being the place where we are called to come together, that we can then be sent out into the world. And the writer to the Hebrews uh, reminds them of the importance of them drawing near to God. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. In the previous uh, chapter, because he's writing to Jewish Christians, he's been talking about uh, their Jewish heritage and how what they found in Christ is so much more than the things that they have left behind. He talks about the new relationship with God, uh, the new covenant with God that they have in Jesus Christ as being better than the old covenant. He talks about uh, meeting together uh, for worship as uh, being in a better tabernacle than the tabernacles that they're left behind, the houses of worship that they're left behind. He talks about the sacrifice that has been offered uh, by Jesus Christ, giving himself up for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And that sacrifice being a better sacrifice than the sacrifice that was offered in the temple talks about Jesus being the high priest, the one who prays for his people, intercedes for them, and Jesus being a better high priest than the priests in the temple that they've left behind. What should mark, what characteristic should mark a believer coming to worship? A believer coming to worship who has a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, through the new covenant. He worships because of the better sacrifice that has been offered. That he comes to worship knowing that the, the better high priest prays for them and is upholding them before the Father. Humility, yes. Worshipfulness, yes. How about confidence? How about confidence? How about confidence being the hallmark of us coming together for worship? And what's the opposite of confidence? Well, it's, it's anxiety. And do you know, anxiety was a feature of the worship of the Old Testament. Anxiety was a feature of the worship of the people of God before Jesus Christ. The priests would lead the people in worship. And as they prepared for worship, they would be anxious had they followed all the right ceremonial rules and ceremonial law that they needed to follow to prepare for worship? Had they conducted the ceremonial washing properly? Were their robes clean enough? They would offer a lamb as a sacrifice. It had to be a spotless lamb. A spotless lamb is hard to find. It had to be without any defect or blemish. Would this lamb be okay? it's got a slight mark will that will that be okay will this sacrifice be accepted for centuries the people worshiped in this way and why did god put them through that why did god require that of his people why was anxiety a feature of their worship because he wanted them to know that a, a better lamb was needed He wanted them to know that a better sacrifice was needed. He wanted them to know that that the law, though it shows us what is good and what is right and how to live, the law cannot save us because none of us can live up to its demands. It wasn't that God wanted his people to be anxious, but he wanted them to know the seriousness of what they were doing when they were coming to worship a holy God. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith. Do you come with confidence this morning, or do you come with anxiety? began with that reading from Philippians. It begins, "The Lord is near. Is God near, or is God far off? John Elridge. Uh, as an author, he's writing a, uh, written a book I'm reading at the moment. It's called Moving Mountains. It's a book we might use in our home groups in the new year. And in that book, he tells a moving story of a man who he knew in his church. He's a, he's a pastor. And it's a moving story, it's also it's, it's a tragedy. And it tells the story of this, this man as he grew up as a, and the impact his relationship with his father had upon him as he grew up. His father was a businessman. Uh, he was wealthy, he was very ambitious, he was very driven. He'd go out to work early in the morning, he would uh, stay at work all day, he would come home, he would have tea in the family, then he would go into the study, he would shut the door, and then he would carry on working. He was never unkind to his son, he was never uh, cruel or difficult to his son, he was just there but not there. He was, he was present but absent. And the son craved his father's affection. And so, what he did, he, after they had the meal together, he would, he would sit down and he would sit outside his father's door. And he would write little notes to his dad. And he'd put them in an envelope and he would slide them under the door. And he would wait for that day when his father would write a little note and slide it back under the door. And that day never came. It's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. I wonder what your relationship with your heavenly Father is like. Galatians four, we read, you are no longer slaves, but sons and daughters. Too many people, too many Christians, they they envisage their relationship with God as being a bit like that boy sitting out outside his father's study. And prayer being writing a petition, writing a request on an envelope, and sliding it under the door. Not sure what happens to it when it gets to the other side. Not sure if it's received, if it's read, if it's heard. Not sure if there'll be a word coming back. How far from the picture that's presented to us of God in the New Testament How far from the picture of God that Jesus reveals to us. Confidence should characterize our relationship with God. Here's another letters from earlier earlier in the book of Hebrews. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. With confidence. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. There's a phrase that will always get my attention as a father uh, from my children, Uh, particularly when it's a phrase that's uttered with an air of uh, desperation or even panic. Dad, can you help me? Dad, can you help me? The door opens, out I go, let's see what's happened. Jesus said this about prayer. He said this about coming into our Heavenly Father's presence. You, though you are evil, even you know how to give good good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in Heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Let us draw near to God. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we might receive mercy to help us in our time of need are you struggling in the workplace are you struggling in your life out of church perhaps you're struggling at your life uh, within church are you coming to the throne of grace to receive the mercy and the help that you need Are you coming to a Heavenly Father who knows all your problems, knows all your troubles, knows how many hairs there are on your head? A Heavenly Father who loves to give good gifts to His children. There's another, let us. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for He is faithful. Unswervingly, there's a word you didn't know was in the Bible has a special resonance for me. Uh, My eldest is learning to drive. Unswervingly, it seems like a really important virtue I'm discovering. Let us hold unswervingly to the faith we profess, the hope we profess, for he is faithful. Uh, That's Bishop Rock Lighthouse. It's four miles west of the Isles of Scilly, uh, it's the most westerly point of the British Isles. It's on a little, a little island there. It's the, the most westerly point of the British Isles. Um, it's huge. It was built in 1858. It's 49 metres high. I don't know how they built it. An incredible uh, feat of engineering. No other land uh, for four miles around. In 1992, it was um, automated, so there are no longer lighthouse keepers there. But up until that point, uh, two lighthouse keepers would live there uh, for two weeks at a time, and then they would swap over. Um, if you look carefully, you can see there's a little helipad on the top. And now helicopters come and they visit, they check it's working, check everything's okay, then they, they fly away. But before, the, before it was built with a helipad on the top, um, the way that you could get to it, the only way that you could get to it was by boat. And uh, the boats would come up, and they would offload the lighthouse keepers, and they would swap over, and they would rotate. Um, Often, when the weather wasn't so good, they weren't able to get the boats close, and so they would lower a rope uh, from the top of the lighthouse, lower it down to the boat, and they would kind of winch the guys um, back and forth. When Sally was a young girl, they used to visit the Isle of of Scilly um, every year. There was a place they would stay. It was where their uh, family holidays uh, would be. And they would often go on a, on a sort of day trip to go around uh, Bishop Rock Lighthouse. And what would happen is the fishermen, as a kind of sideline, uh, if the weather was good, they would organise a little tour. They would fill up their fishing boats, there's one of them there, and they would take you out when it's nice and calm and flat uh, to the lighthouse. See the seals, see the seagulls, all of that stuff. You'd do a little loop around the lighthouse and then you would, you would come back home. And when the lighthouse keepers were there, I never saw this, but Sally tells the story. When the lighthouse keepers were there, sometimes, uh, when they saw the fishing boats arriving, they would do a little show. Uh, so there's a ladder that went up the side of the lighthouse, and they would climb up and down uh, the ladder, and they would wave to people. And occasionally, uh, one of them would slip, and he'd be hanging on, just holding on to the ladder. And of course, the children would scream, and the, the parents would be worried, um, The fishermen never looked too bothered. You kind of got the sense that they'd seen this happen uh, many times before. The Atlantic Ocean is dangerous. There is a lighthouse there because there are over 900 wrecks around the Isles of Scilly. You can go on a calm day and do some sightseeing. But what when it's stormy? This, too, is Bishop Rock Lighthouse. A wave breaking 40 meters high. Imagine being inside when that's happening. No messing around on ladders, no playing around, no fishermen coming out to take day trippers on a little tour. Same lighthouse, same sea, The lighthouse stands firm in the midst of the storm. Brothers and sisters, we are called to do the same. Let us hold unswervingly to the faith we profess. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we have in Christ. When you think about a front line, sometimes the imagery there is is quite military, it's quite warlike. Uh, soldiers go to the front line. It's a place of battle. It's a place of conflict. They'll be on the front line for a couple of weeks and then they will withdraw. Uh, They will come back. Sometimes the front line advances. Sometimes there's a strategic withdrawal. Sometimes people need time off from the line and then uh, they are recuperated and then they return to battle. And sometimes our normal life, our ordinary life feels like battle. Sometimes it feels like we are at war. Sometimes we see casualties around us. Sometimes we're not sure what's going on in the fog of war, what direction we should be going. Should we be pressing on? Should we be pulling back? And it feels like war because we are at war. There is a spiritual battle going on. There's a spiritual battle going on in the hearts and minds of everyone who doesn't know Christ, in the hearts of minds and minds of everybody who does know Christ. And there are times when we are called simply to stand firm, simply to hold on to what we have. Peter, writing to the church, says this Stand firm. Though your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a lion, seeking who he may devour. Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, says this Put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand firm. You might think, Well, I don't want a day of evil, I don't want a day of trouble. I don't want that day to come. I don't want to have to do that. And of course you don't. I don't either. In the same way as lighthouse keepers want nice, calm, sunny days. They don't want to be hunkered down when the waves are breaking over their lighthouse. But that's not real life. That's fantasy life. And we are called to live in the real world. And it's a place of warfare. So let us stand firm. Let us hold on. Let us keep the faith. Let us not give up. Let us not give up. That's a phrase that's there in our reading. Let us not give up meeting together. Let us not give up encouraging one another. Let us not give up everything we have found in Christ. Let's not give up Telling the stories. Stories frame us. They tell us who we are, they tell us where we've come from, they tell us where we're going. Uh, People, when they're displaced or when they're away from their homeland, they tell the stories of where they've come from. They tell the stories of their people or their tribe or their nation. Their stories define them, they give them their identity. A couple of weeks ago, Sally reminded us that the story of the Bible is our story. The story of God uh, telling Moses that he would set his people free is our people, is our story. God is our deliverer. The story of Jesus being gracious to Mary when she doesn't recognize him is our story. The story of Jesus being kind to Peter when he fails him is our story. The story of uh, Jesus. Uh, Coming to Thomas and giving him the proof that he needs, that he is alive, is our story. Let's not stop telling these stories. These stories frame us. These stories tell us who we are. Let's not give up the Christian disciplines. Disciplines shape us. They shape us. Prayer, Bible reading, worship, giving, service, those, those Christian things that we just do, whether we feel inspired to do them or not, whether we want to do them or not, whether we're having a good day or not. These disciplines, they shape us. They form us. Let us not give up on community. Let us not give up on Christian community. It's spelled out in our letter. Do not give up meeting together, as some have done. Church wasn't that different back in the day as it is today. There were some who'd been the lifeblood of the community who had drifted away. There's some who'd lost their way, some who'd just given up the habit of meeting together. Community moulds us. There's not a parent here at some time hasn't been worried about the company their children keep. Why? Because community molds us. Shapes us. Let us not give up on our stories, on our disciplines, on our community. Let us not give up meeting together. Let us encourage one another. Later in the service, we'll have an opportunity uh, to do that. But just one specific uh, mention here. And we said that we would follow this uh, course up, this sermon series, uh, with a special group that would meet together to think specifically about issues for Christians in the workplace. And that group's going to start meeting uh, this week. Uh, Meeting on Wednesday. Uh, Mike's here. I can't see him, but he's around. There you are. Just stand up, Mike. If you'd like to be part of that group... Brothers and sisters meeting together to support and encourage one another, thinking about issues that arise in the workplace. Uh, There's an opportunity to do that. First group meets this Wednesday. Still still space to join. uh, Chat to um, Mike at the end of the service. There is another letters. I'm not expecting you to remember all of these. Hebrews 12. Let us throw off everything that hinders, and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. There is a race marked out for you. There is a race that Jesus has entered you into. And it's already begun, it's already started. You might not be aware of it, but you're already in the race. Your job is just to finish the race. It doesn't matter if you're fast, doesn't matter if you're slow, doesn't matter if you walk a bit, doesn't matter if you get lost. All you need to do is finish the race. How does it feel like? To be in that race. Some of you will remember this film, The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. Uh, Set in Nottingham, filmed in Nottingham, Uh, Tom Courtney was the actor. Tells the story of a boy, a bit of a hoodlum. Uh, He's arrested, uh, ends up in uh, Borstal, and it turns out he's a really gifted runner. And the, uh, the governor of the Borstal uh, sees this talent in him. And he, he seeks to exploit it uh, so he can improve the reputation of the Borstal. And so you have uh, Tom Courtney, this, this young guy who's a really good runner, runs long distances really fast. And he's been exploited by the governor who makes him run and train. And he's also being uh, mocked by the other lads who are in the borstal who make fun of him because he's, he's, he's doing this running, he's doing this race. It's filmed in black and white, and there's memorable scenes of him running around the, the, the prison courtyard just on his own in the pouring rain, just slogging away, just keeping going and keeping going. For some of us, that's what we think being a Christian is. Running around a prison in your own, in black and white, while it's raining, with a governor up above, seeing how well you're doing, and timing you to see what time you finish. That's not what the Christian race is meant to look like. It's not the valiant struggle, the loneliness of the long-distance runner. It looks a bit more like this. my friend on the, right, on the left, uh, Nick Thorley, works for Aid. Uh, my friend on the right, Tim Chambers, works for St. Giles. This week, Nick ran 100 miles. He ran 100 miles in two days. What makes it even more impressive is that he's blind. He's been blind since he was 28, can't see at all. He's run several marathons. He's run several ultra-marathons. He uh, writes about the experience of running as a blind person. Uh, He's had his articles printed in the national uh, press. Uh, For Nick to run a marathon, he needs someone to run alongside him. To run 100 miles, he needs several people to run alongside him. And he calls those people friends. He doesn't call them Guides, he doesn't call them leaders, he doesn't call them pace setters, he calls them friends. And they're friends because they run alongside him. He has a little strap, it's about that long. You hold one side, he holds the other, and you run along together. And because of you, you keep the strap tight, he can he can he can feel where we're going, and you make sure you just guide him around any obstacles that are there in the path. Um He's much fitter than I am. He had 20 clergy, each running five miles at a time through the day, staggered through the day, so that he could run the hundred miles. Sometimes he said, We're going a bit too fast, we need to slow down. Sometimes he said, We're going a bit too slow, we need to speed up. Sometimes he asked, Are you doing, are you doing okay? I did five miles and five miles in an hour. People say, How far is five miles? Tell you how far five miles is, it's further than you think. <laughs> <clears throat> but because the truth is, I wouldn't have run five miles if I hadn't been with Nick. I wouldn't have run five miles if I hadn't been beside him. I'm not fit enough to run a marathon. We got to four and a half miles and I was done in. I'd have stopped, I'd have walked, I'd have finished. But I had my friend beside me. He got me to the finishing line. And of course, as we came to the end, as we came to the end of our hour, as we came to the end of our five miles, as we ticked off 80 miles, uh, there was Tim waiting for us, clapping and cheering as we came to the end, and then he took up uh, his place, and off he went as well. That's what running the Christian race looks like. That's what it looks like. We run together. We run in partnership with one another. Let us consider how we might spare one another on towards love and good deeds. That's why we gather together as church. We gather together to worship. We gather together to pray. We gather together to encourage one another and to spur one another on, to encourage one another, and to say, I know it's hard, keep going. I know it's tough, but you can do it. We can do it together. Come on, let's do this. Let's go. Let's bow our heads in prayer, and then Will's going to lead us again. So, Father, we pray that you would take your word and you would apply it to our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would encourage us afresh to draw near to you in our homes, in the car, when we're commuting, when we have that quiet time. Lord, we pray that those of us who are anxious, you would uh, give us a fresh confidence of the open invitation to come into your presence. Lord, we pray that we would hear the encouragement to carry on meeting together, to supporting one another. Lord, we pray that you would show us how we might indeed spur one another on towards good deeds, how we might hold one another before you, how we might each hold unswervingly to the hope that we have found in you.